0: Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. And here we are for the third time to discuss Njal's Saga. It's officially a trilogy now, John. I know. Uh, there are now as many episodes of this podcast dedicated to Njal's
1: Saga as there are, what, Good Nightmare on Elm Street movies. <laughs> there are as many episodes as there are juggling balls and a juggler's starting kit. As many episodes as there are amigos. Yes! There are as many episodes as there are Ninja Turtles
0: named for artists born after the Western invention of the printing press. Andy. Oh, okay. Now I, I'm hoping that you had to look that up in some weird preparation, but <laughs> I, I know you didn't. Uh, and the odd turtle out would be Donatello, uh, of course. So uh, now, now while three is a nice number for stories, it's far from uh, enough to cover Nia's saga the way we should, or or at least the way we want to. Exactly. Um, as we prep these episodes and then
1: sit down to record them, it's becoming increasingly difficult to balance summary and discussion. There's there's just mm-hmm. so much going on and so much that's worth investigating further. It's not
0: considered one of the pillars of Western literature for nothing, you know. Yeah, and, and we can't possibly do justice to the text either in summary or in discussion. So, I mean, please forgive us if we miss something that you feel should be given more attention. Uh, trust that we're aware of the potential in the material. We just, uh, we're stuck. <laughs> Uh, now, having said that, we're going to take a bit of extra time to talk about what's happening this time out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have to. I already feel like we rushed through the Bergthor and Hallgard feud, which is one of the most important sequences in saga literature. Yeah, I felt the same way. There's still a lot to say about that. But mm-hmm. we'll have to refer you to our bibliography page, which uh, which will be linked to this episode. There's a lot of good material there yeah. for you to sift through. Yeah, and if you feel like we're missing something that should be on that list, go ahead and send us the information. I'll add it to the bibliography. I like that we're compiling a bibliography for Al Saga, uh, even if it is just a select bibliography. We should really be doing that for all the sagas. Oh, I mean, that is just more work for us, John, but uh, <laughs> but I do agree with you. I, I had a lot of fun compiling the additions to the bibliography that you sent me, and there's something about that kind of research that just gets my blood going, mm-hmm. you know? And, and we're looking these things up anyway, so it just makes sense to share what we find and, and the things that we like. Excellent. Now, now, are you uh you going to go back through the sagas we've already covered and put together some bibliography for those as well? It seems like the right thing to do. Well, I wasn't planning on doing any
1: extra work, but I'm sure I've got some lists laying around from uh, when we were prepping those episodes. Uh-huh. Uh, and if there are any ambitious listeners out there with access to university databases, we, uh, we welcome you to get involved in compiling any bibliography you feel like sharing. It might be cool to have a section mm. of our website devoted to
0: saga bibliography and current research. That's an interesting idea. Yeah, if you are, if anyone's out there and they're interested in helping with any of this, uh, just get in touch with us through email, sagathingpodcast at gmail.com, and, uh, we'll, we'll figure out a way to give you credit somehow on that bibliography page for things that you contributed to the list. All right, all right. Uh, we've got a
1: lot to do in this episode, and we're going to be covering an important part of the story today. Uh, if anyone listening has been disappointed with the low body count in this saga up to this point, you're in for a treat. Uh, Gunnar is a man of peace, but, once he finally works himself up to anger, it's a bloodbath.
0: Yes. Uh, but before we get into what's to come, we need to offer a quick refresher for anyone who's already forgotten what happened in the previous episode. Uh, are you ready for the recap, John? All right. Uh, get your finger in your ear, Andy. Let's go.
1: Last time on Nyal Saga. We met Icelandic Superman Gunnar Hermundsen and his friend Njál Thorgason. Njál is a renowned legal mind, while Gunnar is famous for his physical skills and fighting ability. Don't forget his stunning good
0: looks. Oh, that's right, he's as handsome as a picture and a real gentleman too. Thank you. Gunnar's an adventuresome sort who craves a life of action. He finds that action along with some fame and fortune as he swashbuckles his way through Scandinavia, attacking Viking ships with his bold-hearted brother Coldkiggy. With his newfound glory, Gunnar eventually returns home to Iceland, where he meets the ravishing femme fatale, long Longlegs. And wherever Holgerth goes, trouble soon follows. Before you know it, there's trouble brewing between the tempestuous Holgerth and Njal's obstreperous wife, Bergthora. An exchange of insults leads
1: to a series of murders between the two households, but best buds Njal and Gunnar refuse to allow the feud between their lady friends to drive them apart. Things get messy when Njal's friend Thord, foster father to the Njalsons, is murdered by one of Holgerth's henchmen. But with every new killing, Njal and Gunnar manage to smooth things over with a legal settlement. Njal's reputation does take a hit, however, when Holgerth's cousin Sigmund composes a dirty verse mocking Njal with the nickname Old Beardless.
0: The heroic Gunnar doesn't stand idly by, however. He offers a stern warning to all who know the verse and vows to become the enemy of anyone who repeats it.
1: Now despite that warning, rumor flies and word of the insult soon gets to Bergthora, Njal's wife, who goads her sons into seeking revenge. They find and kill Sigmund and his friend Skjold, Three awkward years pass before Njarl offers a gift to Gunnar to repay him for the loss of Sigmund. His overture of friendship melts the ice, and the two men reiterate their shared commitment to their friendship.
0: Huzzah! (laughs) (laughs) You know, these, uh, summaries are running the risk of becoming a full feature in their own right. Uh I'm glad we don't have to cover what uh, happened in the first episode there. Yeah, uh, by the end of the saga, these recaps could end up being
1: pretty long if we tried to cover everything. I think it's wise to limit ourselves just the previous episode. Yeah, so uh, so we're all cut up now. Absolutely. Uh, but the references to Njal's beard are
0: important, even though their implications are sort of beneath the surface for much of today's episode. But not far below the surface. No. Uh, but the focus of this episode and the next one will be on Gunnar, who will finally start swinging more than a pouch of money around. Well, like I said, the body count is about to go way up. Yeah. Now, before we jump into the new stuff, I'd like to get your opinion on something one of our listeners asked after listening to part two of Njal's Saga. Okay, what's the question? Well, Sarah posted a comment on our website asking about the inner workings of marriages in this saga. Specifically, she wants to know why Njal and Gunnar don't do anything to stop their wives from using members of the household to conduct a dangerous feud. If Thrain can divorce his wife for composing a poem about him and then engage himself immediately to a teenage girl that same day, shouldn't Gunnar or Njall be able to do something about the situation? I mean, if they don't want to divorce them, she asks, why not at least a quick beating, which Sarah does note isn't at all uncommon in the medieval world, though she also notes that hitting a spouse is never okay.
1: Well, it's a good question. Uh, there's certainly nothing to stop either one of them from divorcing their spouse. We've talked about how easy it is to divorce someone uh, in this period, uh, and I suppose within reason, uh, physical violence is also an option, regardless of how reprehensible it may be. Uh, but I think part of the problem here is that we we as modern audiences have a trouble understanding how to think about the intersecting worlds of men and women in the sagas. Um, the mm-hmm. the ways that are open to Nyal and Gunnar, short of divorcing their wives, which neither one of them particularly wants to do. Um, remember, they they these are both reasonably happily married men. I mean, Gunnar, perhaps, as we'll see today, there are issues there. Um, but Nal never registers any displeasure with being married to Bergthora. Divorce is kind of the no. DEFCON 1 option, it's the nuclear option uh, for dealing with the problem. Neither one of them wants to go to that extreme. Their other options are largely based in things like law and in things like making settlements or conducting a violent feud. None of those things really work against your own spouse, and in any case women are excluded from those modes of resolving conflict. The women, on the other hand, because they're outside those modes of conflict, are in some ways shielded from the consequences of that conduct. Uh, They're able Mm -hmm. to conduct a feud while leaving it to their husbands to deal with the ramifications and the fallout from that feud. They're able to sort of enact their unhappiness without actually having to then deal with the purses and deal with the uh, the legal settlements and have to deal with the um, the the hit to the friendship or hit to the public image that the men take. Mm-hmm. So the problem here, I think, is that they're both just living in different worlds when it comes to this particular aspect of a marriage, and it's very difficult uh, for a person of this time to find their way across that divide.
0: Yeah. Well, and I would add two things. The, the first is very simple, and, and that is that this does highlight, in many ways, the independence of women in medieval Iceland. Mm-hmm. Um, They're free to act as they as they choose. Um, and again, mm-hmm. short of divorcing them or causing a major hullabaloo, right. um, there's not much that the, the men can necessarily do. These women can act independently and, uh, and deal with the consequences just as a man would. And
1: it's worth pointing out that um, Sarah mentioned whether physical violence is an option here. Uh, perhaps it is, and perhaps socially there isn't the, the same stigma attached to it there would be in the modern day. But as we saw in part one of this saga, uh, hitting your spouse doesn't come without consequences, right? We saw Hallgirth take it upon herself to revenge herself on her first husband, uh, and have him killed for yeah. having struck her. And in the second case, a member of her family, even without her desiring him to do it, decides to take revenge for her having been struck by her husband and kills her husband. That we shouldn't make the mistake of thinking that because other men in the culture might not censure a man for physically striking his wife, that doesn't mean that there aren't consequences or that the wife herself might not take it upon herself to seek vengeance.
0: Yeah. So the the other thing I'll mention quickly is just for for narrative symmetry. Hogarth and Bergthor represent one avenue of uh, of conflict and conflict resolution, mm-hmm. and uh, Gunnar and Njall represent a, a complete other one. Um, so it, it's partly the author's choice in order to kind of get the themes of this of this whole plot kind of working to have these two things going on simultaneously. Right. Njall and Gunnar's friendship and and peaceful resolution, and the more violent kind of vengeful resolutions that uh, Bergthor and Holgerth, uh seek. Um, so th- those things are, are, are really important for the thematic uh, inner mm-hmm. workings of this text. Yeah. So I hope that answers your question, Sarah. Yes. Uh, if anyone else has questions about this saga or any saga we've covered, please feel free
1: to ask. Uh, we'll try to answer them either online or in a future episode or maybe both. Yeah. And we,
0: uh, we have the quarter court coming up sometime soon, don't we? Yeah. We've got uh, two or three more sagas before then. But the second quarter quarter is getting closer. I think we'll get there before the end of the year. Yeah. Well, uh, we can answer a lot of questions there. So start mm-hmm. sending in questions, and uh, we'll get to them. You saga fans, you. You saga fans, you. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Oh dear God. Uh, okay.
1: I'm gonna I'm gonna chalk that up to you not having got much sleep lately. Uh, yeah.
0: Thank you. I appreciate that. All right.
1: Uh, let's get this episode underway, shall we? Hit the summary button.
0: In this episode. Our hero Gunnar is confronted with an identity crisis, as the peace he's worked so hard to maintain in the region begins crumbling around him. While Gunnar's friendship with Niall is secure, and the feud between their wives goes quiet, new threats emerge that will challenge Gunnar's patience and test his mettle in battle once again. The first challenge comes from the wealthy farmer Otkel Skarfsson, whose well-supplied storehouse is raided and burned by the Irish slave Melkoff, sent by Hallgerth to settle the score. Despite Gunnar's efforts to right the wrongs of his wife, Otkel and his malevolent counselor Skomkil pursue a more aggressive legal vengeance, hoping to shame Gunnar and improve their own standing. To achieve their goals, they enlist the aid of two powerful new accomplices, Gysir the White and Geir the Gothi. The villainous Smoor the also steps in to plot against Gunnar. Despite the best efforts of Njal and Gysir the White, the conflict will eventually erupt into a bloody battle where Gunnar's Adgir finds itself useful once again. The second feud follows quickly on the heels of the first. This time, Gunnar tangles with the Starkathersons and the Aegelsons, a group of troublesome men whose eagerness to compete against Gunnar in sport and social politics quickly leads to a bloody violence. And while Gunnar may profess to be a reluctant killer, he certainly seems to relish dispatching these villains. Now, See Gunnar in all his wrathful glory, as saga Thing continues its trek through Njal's Saga, chapters 46 to 63.
1: So, as I was hinting before that intro, uh, the thing that jumps out at me about the chapters we're covering this time is the focus on masculinity. Especially how male
0: identity is socially negotiated. (laughs) Wow. That's a heck of a way to come back from the intro. Uh, But... (laughs) But, uh, you know, I, I do like that word negotiated you used. Uh, the, the sagas are often thought of as depicting a hyper-masculinized culture. And I don't know. Yeah. I think I think actually we've even been guilty of presenting them that way sometimes. Well, I, you know, I don't necessarily think that it's inaccurate to say that. Mm-hmm. But uh, but recognizing that the sagas have a, a preoccupation with manliness isn't the same as saying that manliness itself is simple. Right. Or Or even that it's an unalloyed blessing to be male in this culture. As Armin Jakobsen says, uh, masculinity seems to have been imagined as something of a burden in 10th century Iceland. That's something of an extreme statement, but uh, a lot of sagas really do treat male identity as a potential vulnerability. And as we'll see, the the writer who created Gunnar is very aware of the potential pitfalls of masculinity. Male Mm. gender was, and often still is, a passport into the power games of society. And in medieval Iceland, manliness is a major component of a man's honor, which defines his reputation and standing. So... Attacking another man's manliness was an effective way of checking his entire social reputation. Of course, having said that, we should also
1: note that the sagas are themselves almost certainly produced primarily by and for male sensibilities. Any claim to the difficulties of life as a man in the sagas is almost certainly a
0: degree of special pleading on behalf of that male-centered worldview. Maybe, but don't sell the sagas short. The things we talked about in the last two episodes, like betrothal customs, consent in marriage, women as feud masterminds, women as managers of the household, those are so interesting to me in part because they do seem to suggest uh, that they're looking at the world from multiple perspectives.
1: Sure. Uh, I, I should emphasize that I said primarily male Not exclusively male. Okay, yeah. Our knowledge of the audience and even the authorship of the sagas
0: involves an awful lot of guesswork. Yeah, that's fair. And although I I think that the position of women in this saga in particular is really interesting. While we may start out feeling sympathetic to figures like Un or Holgerth for being forced into marriages, both of them quickly turn into symbols of unchecked female power and negative ones at that. Mm-hmm. Un squanders the dowry money that Gunnar worked so hard to get from Hrút, and we all know how Hulgirth expresses her will. And Bergthor isn't exactly a heartwarming or inspiring image of womanhood either. So, you know, I'm not always sure that the author has the best interests of women in medieval Iceland in mind. Right. Which, of course, is a long way of
1: saying that it's all more complicated than we've managed to express so far. Yeah. Let's get back to manliness. Yes, yes. Sorry about that. No, no, it's fine. Um, The portrayal of women in this saga is worth talking about. I mean, if any of you listeners are academics and want to explore this topic of women in the sagas professionally, we're actually hosting a panel at the 2017 International Congress on Medieval Studies at Western Michigan
0: University on that subject. Look at that, a plug for our panel. That is very smart of you, John. Well, it seemed appropriate given the context. Yes, yes. So uh, if you have a paper or want to write a paper about women in the sagas, we're sponsoring a panel called The Second Sex, Women and Power in Old Norse Icelandic Literature. So just send us an abstract by September 15th and we'll consider it. You can uh, use our email. That's uh, sagathingpodcast at gmail.com for that. And we're, we're eager to continue the conversation there. So please do. Uh,
1: unless, of course, you're listening to this in, say, 2018 or 2019. Yeah, yeah. Case, then, never um, mind. Don't worry about it. You missed a hell of a panel. <laughs> uh, now back to masculinity. Right, right. It's about time. Now, what we were saying before, even as manhood was seen as a foundational source of strength, it was a fragile basis for a man's reputation. Uh, it was necessary to that
0: reputation, but it had to be publicly performed and always reinforced against any insinuations or attacks. Right, and, and those attacks might come in a variety of forms, like uh, sexual impotence. And uh, sexual non-normativity, for example, are just two ways to criticize a man. Right. I mean,
1: th- there's also um, legal incompetence, uh, mm-hmm. emotional displays, failure to provide for one's family. Failure to take uh, violent revenge. On the other hand, there's also being too quick to turn to violence. Yeah. Overly violent men and berserkers aren't exactly beloved hearth companions in Icelandic society. Mm. And as we saw with Hroth's curse, uh, even a fully functioning or over-functioning sexually heteronormative man was potentially vulnerable
0: to magical attack or legal humiliation or... Or social, social embarrassment. And uh, I would add emotions can be problematic as well. Anger can be acceptable in sure. the right context, but expressions of other emotions threaten to undermine the masculine facade. I mean, The most emotionally volatile man in the sagas might be Eil Grimson, and his masculinity is more or less unquestioned until his old age. In this saga, we'll get to see some emotional vulnerability from Gunnar soon, and I think that's an interesting moment, and it's received a lot of critical attention for good reason over the years. Yeah, absolutely. Um, again, none of the cases are built on a simple binary of strong
1: or weak men, or men who are respected as manly and those who aren't. There's really no
0: one metric for deciding what constitutes manliness. Yeah, uh, and can we talk about appearances now? Yeah, I was hoping we would, actually. Go ahead. Yeah, so, so, so last time we talked a bit about Niall's beardlessness and what that means, and also about Holger's attempt to humiliate him with accusations of androgyny or sexual immaturity. And you manliness isn't built on the masculine model of physical dominance like Gunnar's is. He's a lawyer. But as a man, he's mm-hmm. still vulnerable to Holger's insinuations concerning what his appearance might reveal about his manhood. Right. So an
1: important point to remember is that this saga offers several competing archetypes of masculinity.
0: And there's no one behavior that's allowed to fully own a claim to being totally right or beyond reproach. Yeah, Like I said, we, we saw a bit of that same kind of pluralism last time when we focused on the saga's presentation of women. The exact narrative mm-hmm. interest is up for debate, but this is an author who is interested in gender. And in this section, the masculinity question feels very deliberate.
1: Well, as last time, there are a handful of go-to scholars and readings we'll be addressing
0: throughout the episode, but uh, I think for now, let's just pick up where we left off. With Njal and Gunnar sharing a bromance for the ages. Part Eleven: A Friend in Need. As Gunnar and Jarl rekindle their friendship, a terrible famine hits Iceland, making life difficult for everyone. Oh, right, the famine. Now, diligent listeners will remember a famine in Henthor's Saga, where Blundkettle traveled to Henthor's farm to ask for supplies to feed the many followers that he had.
1: Right. Now, if you remember that part of Henthor's Saga. This next part will sound somewhat familiar,
0: although I think the subtle differences are revealing. It's worth Mm -hmm. comparing the two. It is, but, uh, you know, we don't have to do that ourselves. If you can get a hold of William Ian Miller's Blood Taking and Peacemaking, which is included in our bibliography, he devotes two whole sections to analyzing both famine scenes in their cultural context, and it's really good stuff. So that's service. Yeah. Now, we're just going to focus on Njall's saga, but uh, please don't blame me if I make reference to the Henthor scene. I'll try not to. All right, so after a terrible harvest year, people all over the land are running short of hay and food. Gunnar, being the kind of guy that he is, shares what he's got with anyone who comes asking. And Blunkettel did the same thing, remember? Mm-hmm. And just like Blunkettel, Gunnar soon finds himself running short and in need of more supplies for the long winter. See, that's just bad planning. Maybe, but it's also great PR. Gunnar's mm-hmm. reputation was already great following his trip abroad. His even-handedness in the feud between Halgarth and Bergthora, and now this abundant generosity, only further enhance his reputation and his honor. I mean, he's already got hero status, so I, I guess he might be looking for sainthood at this point. Uh, if Iceland were a Christian nation, that is. <laughs> Public adoration makes for a thin supper, Andy. And fame? Nah, it's an empty purse. Um, I I believe you're quoting something, but I don't know what. What is that? No time for that. Gunnar's household is hungry. No, 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 no. Go ahead. Tell me what it is. What was that? All right. It's crawl. I'm quoting crawl. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saddened, but I'm not surprised, really. Hey, you shouldn't be. Uh, If you haven't seen that film, it's a fine, fine piece of cinema. Well, you know, I I remember seeing previews for Kroll when I was very young. I don't remember (laughs) what year that came out. You probably do. But I was very young. Uh, 1983, summer. Yeah, so there you go. I was five. (laughs) It it, it looked like, uh, you know, a future medievalist dream. So I I was begging my dad to take me to see that. Uh, But he refused. (laughs) I don't know why. Uh, And I, I don't think I've ever seen the movie because of that. Thanks, Dad. Um, but I haven't, uh, I haven't thought about it until now. So, uh, is this any good? Should I go see this?
1: Oh my gosh. I can't even, I cannot give you a brief answer to this. And I really want to get on with the saga. Crawl is one (laughs) of my favorite terrible films. Is that right? Um, And, uh, oh, it's a very satisfying bad movie. Um, if you like 80 schlock, it is, it is a must see. Well, then maybe we have to have a little viewing party. Absolutely. A little nugget here. It is also the first film roles of both Robbie Coltrane and one Liam Neeson.
0: Wait, Liam Neeson's in this? Yes. Did you say it's his first movie? Because I thought that uh, Excalibur was his first movie. Is that true? Yes, it is. Looks like you learned something today, John. (laughs) Okay, back to the story. So Gunnar visits a nearby neighbor, Otkel Scarfason, and he wants to purchase these supplies. He takes with him his brother Kolskegi, his cousin Lambi Sigurdsson, and his uncle-slash-stepson-in-law, Thrain Sigurðarsson. Yeah,
1: as we said last time, Gunnar's uncle married Holograth's daughter. It's complicated and a little distressing to modern sensibilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, more importantly, Gunnar is careful not to bring too big a party so that Akko won't feel threatened. Or at least that's what he hopes.
0: But it's also worth noting that he's not alone. Yeah. Uh, the size of the group is actually pretty important. Typically speaking, a hostile party would have more than five people, since raiding someone else's property is a dangerous activity that requires some backup. This group is small enough to suggest to Otkel from the outset that the visit's not hostile. Right. Uh, Otkel Scarferson is a difficult man, Um,
1: and he's the central figure of a group of men who are going to become important to this next part of the story, so we
0: should really introduce them all briefly. Okay, but uh, I'm going to warn our listeners, there are a lot of guys here. You might want to take notes. How is that different from any saga? Our hardcore listeners are always prepared for this kind of thing. And honestly, our less hardcore listeners know when to tune us out. Which is all the time, I assume. Uh, so, <laughs> Otkel has a son named
1: Thorgir Otkelson, who's young but promising. Uh, Otkel also has two brothers named Halkil Scarferson and Halbjorn the White.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Holkel is big and strong and lives with Otkel, while Halbjorn is a seafarer and probably the best of the brothers. So, two brothers and a son. Everybody got that? And there's also Otkil's neighbor, Skamkull of Hoth, who is malicious, untruthful, and overbearing. And Melkulf,
0: a troublesome Irish slave Otkil purchased from his brother Halbjorn. And don't forget Otkil's other family connections. He's got two second cousins, Geiser the White and Gergoli, both of them well-known chieftains with lots of influence. So they'll probably be important.
1: Right. Now, ultimately, the point the author is trying to make through this list of relations is that otkil has got powerful connections. And with
0: Otkel and Skamkel leading the way, things will turn sour pretty quickly. Right, and they waste no time in causing a bit of trouble. Gunnar comes to Otkel in good faith and asks if he can buy hay and food, since Otkel has a surplus. But Otkel refuses to sell him either from the start. The reason for this refusal isn't immediately clear, though.
1: Ah, but isn't Otkel acting on the advice of his friend Skamkel? The guy who was introduced, as we just said, as malicious,
0: untruthful, overbearing, and vicious to deal with. Mm. I mean, that That would explain. explain it. Yeah, that's certainly part of the problem. Uh, but the saga only introduces Skamkel after Otkel has uh, already refused to sell either food or hay to Gunnar. There, there's something more going on here, I think, but but we'll get to that as events unfold. Uh, at the very least, what we can say is that Otkel is uh, taking advantage of the situation to be a little high-handed with Gunnar. Right, now I know you had mentioned
1: the famine scene in Henthor's saga earlier. This mm-hmm. is almost exactly the same, right? I mean, Blunkettle yes. had been giving out hay and food to everyone in his region during the famine... And then came up short on his own farm, forcing him to ask Henthor for some help.
0: Yes, and, and just like Otkel, Henthor refuses to sell or give any supplies for some reason. But uh, remember mm-hmm. that Blunkettle ends up taking the supplies from Henthorer by force and then paying a fair amount against Henthor's will. It's it's kind of a big deal in that saga. Well, it leads to Blunkettle's death, so
1: yeah, kind of a big deal. <laughs> but you're right. Uh, in Gunnar's case, he's not going to take anything by force. Although Thrain does suggest they do exactly what Blunkettle did. Mm-hmm. Skamkell steps in at that point and says, The men of Mosfell would have to be dead before you
0: sons of Sigfus could rob him. And, and that puts an end to that, doesn't it? Uh, Gunnar has to leave empty-handed. Well, not completely. Ackle does offer to sell
1: Gunnar his Irish slave, Melkolf. He's a useless slave that Akkel's brother Halbjorn had given to him for free. Oh, that's a grand estimation of Melkolf's value.
0: Well, Halbjorn does
1: at least tell Otkel that Melkoff isn't a good slave, which is more than Otkill does for Gunnar.
2: Mm.
0: Whatever the case, Gunnar agrees to the sale for some reason. Yeah, I, I don't know why he's agreeing to another mouth to feed when he's already failing to find food for the ones he's got. Uh, maybe he feels like mm. he has to come home with something, even if he didn't manage to get food. I'm not sure that bringing home another mouth to feed is going to help him save face here. Um, it's a pretty foolish thing to do if we're only counting mouths. Maybe, but remember that Gunnar is overly generous. He he just can't stop helping mm-hmm. people out no matter what, even, even at great expense to himself. Right. Now, in this specific
1: case, it's not very smart. Yeah. Uh, don't forget that every time he brings a servant into his household, Halgarth
0: uses them as cannon fodder in a war with Bergthora. Yes, yes. And and can I ask a quick question here? Sure. Yeah, why doesn't Gunnar just go to Njal for help? I mean, they've repaired their relationship, right? Mm. And initially, when I was thinking about this, I thought that maybe Otkel's property at Kirkebauer might be a lot closer. So maybe that would be more convenient. Mm -hmm. But then I checked the map, and Njal's farm is just as close to Gunnar's property as Otkel's. So what's the deal here? Why not go to Njal? Well, I've always thought that Gunnar might avoid going to
1: Njal specifically because they are friends. Hmm. Remember that Bergthora is not a big fan of Gunnar's
0: household. Even if everything is great between Jarl and Gunnar... Which isn't necessarily the case. They they might be friends again, but the wounds left by the feud aren't fully healed yet. Exactly. Uh, And to make things worse, Bergthora is the one who controls the stores at Jarl's house. And that's an important point, actually. I mean, we talk about the division of authority in an Icelandic farmhouse, but in a situation like this, it's Bergthora, not Jarl, who ought to be making decisions about sharing food and how much, with another household. Uh, Which also brings up the Mm -hmm. point that Gunnar probably ought to be less generous with his own supplies, right? He's technically infringing on Holger's privileges by unilaterally deciding to share food with others. That's a good point. Um,
1: Meanwhile, we see the correct respect for the wife's privilege when Jal finds out about Gunnar's situation. He's obviously appalled by Otkel's refusal and mentions it to Bergthora, saying, This was badly done, refusing to sell to Gunnar. There's little hope for others if men like him cannot get supplies. Yes, and
0: Bergthor replies, Why do you need to say much about it? It would be much more noble to share our food and hay with him. That's as true as day. I'll give him some supplies. Yes, so, Njal brings uh, this whole thing up casually with his wife, but he does it in a way that gives Bergthor the ability to make a decision about the household goods. Mm -hmm.
1: Right, and for her part... Bergthor recognizes that Njal wants to give supplies to Gunnar mm-hmm. and takes the initiative when
0: it's offered to her rather than risk having Njal push the point. Yeah. I should add uh, in, William, in William Ian Miller's uh, reading of this whole thing, um, he says that Njal is basically nagging her. He, he makes a lot of the uh, Bergthor's <laughs> comment that why do you have to talk so much about it as if he's just kind right. of been going on and on and he's taking advantage of his ability to annoy her to get her to agree to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not sure if I see it that way. <laughs> Anyway, i believe that if we saw more than one statement from him about it. Yeah. Uh, um, what I think is interesting here, uh, maybe more interesting, is that Bergthor is also savvy enough to recognize that the act of giving these goods to Gunnar brings with it some important political implications for her household. Sure. Uh, the gift implies something about the status of Njall's household in relation to Gunnar's.
1: I don't mm-hmm. think Bergthor is unaware of the opportunity this presents her. Uh but Njal is more interested in helping a friend in need. He's not concerned about the power struggles between the wives. He approaches Gunnar with supplies and says, I don't want you to ever turn to anyone but me when you're in need.
0: Yes, it's a nice moment. And as far as Njal and Gunnar are concerned, this gift is an important symbol of their friendship. Uh, Gunar is deeply touched by it, and he says, Your gifts are good, but of greater worth to me is the friendship of you and your sons. So, Bergthor
1: has provided Njal with the chance to act magnanimously toward a friend, and Njal mm-hmm. has demonstrated his deference to Bergthor's
0: control of the household. Halgarth and Gunnar could learn a lesson about happy marriages from these two. They could, but they won't. You know that. <laughs> no, of course they won't. Part 12. Thief Size I, I, I don't think it'll be a surprise to anyone when I say that Holgerth is going to be a problem. Uh, no, the title of the section kind of gives that away. <laughs> so as soon as Gunnar leaves for the all-thing the next summer, Halgarth, as is her wont, decides that she wants to tweak alt for refusing Gunnar. Just like Bergthor, Halgarth is hyper-aware of the game of honor. That's right. Um, whereas Gunnar and Niall have always been
1: most concerned with maintaining peace, the women are more interested in status and the intricacies of the honor game. When Gunnar came home empty-handed from Otkel's, Holgerth knew exactly
0: what Otkel was doing. Well, and to be fair, she's not wrong. Otkel wasn't just being mean for the sake of being mean. Mm-hmm. He's clearly jealous of Gunnar's status in the region, and he enjoyed the opportunity to have power over him for just that one moment. Right. Yeah. By letting Gunnar go home with nothing but a lazy slave who would bring no value to the house whatsoever, Otkel made Gunnar look bad, at least in Otkel's mind and his mm-hmm. family's mind. Um, and this doesn't sit well with Holgerth. Fortunately, she's got a new Irish slave uh, named Melkoff who knows his way around Otkell's uh, farm. See, this isn't good. No, it's not. Uh, she approaches Melkoff and uh, asks him to go steal some cheese and butter from Otkell's storehouse. Well, she doesn't That'll really ask him. I mean, she threatens to kill him if he refuses to go. True, though that's an interesting moment in itself. I mean, she has to threaten him because as terrible as Melkoff may be, he's not happy about being sent out as a thief. Mm-hmm. It highlights just how despicable theft was considered in uh, Icelandic culture. Right. Well, and the issue is secrecy.
1: Right? We've seen this before with murder. Mm-hmm. The problem is the de- deception and the anonymity of the thief. Medieval Iceland, um, yes. it's like a gift exchange culture, which means that balancing the ledger is extremely important. If you don't know who killed mm-hmm. your relative or who stole your cheese,
0: it's pretty difficult to repay that person. Right. Um, balance can't be restored. It's so quite a, a gap there. Who, who who killed your relative or who stole your cheese? <laughs> well, I'm looking ahead in the narrative point. a little bit. Yeah, right. Uh, and, you know, the Gragas, the, Gragos, the uh, medieval Icelandic law codes, they, they support all of this. Anyone who takes another person's property openly, that is publicly, those people can be outlawed, but they're charged with seizing property for profit, not with theft. There's an important distinction there. The repercussions for theft are far more serious. So, for example, someone who sees his property has opportunities to make their way back into society after being outlawed. A thief's outlawry is permanent and his crime is unforgivable.
1: Right. Which, by the way, um, now you can see just how serious Hrutz's comment about Holgerth was in that first chapter of the saga. This is the fruition of something that yeah. was foreshadowed in the very first chapter of the saga. As William A. Miller says, Halgerth's thief's eyes at last catch sight of something to steal –
0: Mm, right. This is a big deal. Um, and her thief's eyes are now set on Otkell's storehouse, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Melkoff's got little choice but to do, as Holgreth says. She wants him to go to Otkell's, steal some cheese and butter, then set the whole storehouse on fire so that no one's going to know that the food's missing. Holy crap. That, that seems excessive. That's <laughs> that's quite an escalation. Yeah, well, it, it gets a little worse. Otkell has a guard dog, you see. But it knows Melkoff, and it doesn't bark when it sees him. It, instead, it runs up to him and licks his hand, and he pats oh, the dog no. on the head. Mm. And after Melkoff steals the food, he does set the storehouse on fire, and and then he kills the dog. No, no, no. That's just evil. He does what he was sent to do, and and this is a major event in the saga. Hulgarth uh, doesn't just steal food here, which would be bad enough. Um, she has the whole storehouse burned down, so there's destruction of property and loss of all the food. So she's really hitting Altkell where it hurts.
1: Well, and Melkov killed the dog. He's got a special place in hell waiting for him. I mean I know there's you know, that's isn't that a Sherlock Holmes mystery with the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime? The dog does nothing because he knows the person who came into the farm. You have to kill the dog to cover your tracks, but still it's brutal. But the plan works. Yeah. Ockle's household discovers the burned building in the morning, but they conclude that it was an accident caused by the kitchen being attached to the storehouse, which admittedly is a stupid place to put a
0: kitchen. So, for the time <laughs> being, it appears that Holgarth has
1: gotten away with it.
0: Well, I th- you know, I think that also indicates that uh, you know fires in these buildings aren't at all uncommon. I mean, you're uh-huh. dealing with open flame and uh, old coals, so right? not surprising when things go up in flames. Um, But, uh, you know, that's the benefit of building turf houses that you can uh, rebuild uh, quickly and easily. That's right. Um, But, uh, you know, there's a a little detail that we forgot to mention. On his way home from Otkel's, Melkov's shoestring breaks while he's walking along the Ranga River. He stops to repair it with a special knife that Otkel had given him as a gift when he first came to his house. Now, I guess he's fumbling around with all his cheeses and he forgets to pick the knife back up. So there it lies on the shores of the Ranga. We've seen this before. You'd think secret agents would be more careful in these sagas. Well, you know, true, but if they were, there wouldn't be as much of a story to tell. So, nah, that's there. fair enough. Uh,
1: back at Gunnar's house, Hologreth isn't exactly discreet about what she's done. Uh, when Gunnar and a large group of men return from the All-Thing, she sets out a lavish table full of fine dairy products
2: that
0: weren't <laughs> in the storehouse when Gunnar left for the thing. And Gunnar knows right away that this food on his table didn't come from his pantry, and when he confronts Halgerth all she can say is, it's not for men to busy themselves with preparing food. Well, she's right about that, uh, but I don't think Gunnar's worried about the preparation so
1: much as the source of the food. He starts to lose his temper now and says, It's a bad thing if I'm partner to a thief and then he strikes Halgerth. Not
0: again, man. There there's a lot of spousal abuse in this saga. Well, there's a lot of Halgerth abuse. Yeah, and and she's in no way afraid mm-hmm. after this. She just looks at Gunnar and tells him that that she's going to remember this slap and pay it back when I can. And mm-hmm. those those are weighty words coming from someone like Halgerth. <laughs> yes, they are. Uh so what we
1: have here is an inversion of the functional partnership we saw between Njall and Bergthora. Gunnar and Holgerth are both concerned with asserting their own honor and privileges,
0: rather than helping one another to be successful in their half of the marriage. Absolutely. And the result is that everyone's unhappy and a dog gets killed. Stop mentioning the dog! You're breaking my heart here. But the the consequences of Holgerth's
1: theft are serious. Um, And it isn't long before the whole event goes public. Uh, Skamkil, the evil advisor of Akkil, is out riding along the Ranga River looking for sheep one day, and, of course, he finds the knife and belt that Melkov left behind. What a surprise. Yeah. Uh, with, that, with, with that evidence in hand, he and Akil seek help from their neighbor,
0: Morth Valgardson. Now there's a name to make the blood of a saga fan run cold. <laughs>
1: we mentioned Morth in our last episode. Uh, he's the son of Valgard the Grey
0: and Unmorth's daughter. Yeah, he's a relative of Gunnar's, but uh, as we said, he's jealous of Gunnar and hates him with a passion. Right, and this is his first chance to make Gunnar look bad, which
1: uh, which falls in line with Otkel's purpose nicely. Morth helps Otkel prove Holger's theft by getting some of the cheese from Holger's storehouse and proving that it came from a cheese mold in Otkel's house. Yeah, it's a pretty clever piece of detective work
0: by the the Otkel house. Yeah,
1: CSI Hitherendi. I'd watch that. That sounds good. When Melchall stole this cheese, he really broke the mold
0: <laughs> was, was that uh, really necessary you know, I'm not even sure that that makes sense look it was that or a series of terrible cheese buns I didn't think we wanted a whole saga about cheeses <laughs> okay so uh, saga is a brand of cheese oh god somehow I'm not surprised
1: wait you're not gonna humor me no. Okay, so, oh, come on. I'm carefully oh, stilting these for your American sensibility, but Stop. if you're not going to be serene about it, I'll just fade away and let you go to work.
0: Okay, mm-hmm. that's uh, ten. Uh, what were you saying? Well, I, I would have used Gouda myself, but uh, now you stole it, so. Uh, were you planning on a Limburger joke <laughs> as well, or do these jokes all stink badly enough on their own? Oh, you wound me. Ooh, listen, if I'm uh, curd with you, it's because time is a factor. Ah! Get it? The wolf. <laughs> okay. Um, anyway, it's not clear that Gunnar even knows of the role his cousin Morth played in this whole episode. True, but uh, he's still out there lurking and looking for another chance to hurt Gunnar. Sure. Uh, but first, Gunnar has a more immediate problem to deal with.
1: The cheese mold evidence means that things are looking ugly for him. Uh, and Gunnar knows the rumor of Holger's theft is spreading, so he and his crew return to Otkel's farm
0: to offer compensation. Yeah, and it's interesting. He only returns now. I mean, he, he knew of the, the theft, but uh, right. it's only when it becomes right. public knowledge that he shows up. Well, I think it suggests just
1: how serious the, uh, the problem of theft is, right? That even someone of Gunnar's integrity would rather avoid having his name associated with theft.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Even if it's just about re- re- compensating someone for it. Mm-hmm. So Otkel, once again, is going to be advised by Skamkel here. Uh, he dismisses Gunnar's initial offer of double compensation, which is very generous, mm-hmm. and sends Gunnar away. And he then sends Skamkel to get advice from Otkel's relatives, the chieftains Geezer the White and Geir the Gothi. Yeah. Why is Otkel trusting this guy? Well, that, that's a fair question. Skamkel's a, a classic example of a bad counselor, but it's not like no one warns him of this. Pretty much everyone is Mm -hmm. telling Otkel that trusting Skamkel's advice is really idiotic. Yet he goes on listening to him anyways. Well, I mean, we shouldn't discount the possibility that Otkel's an idiot. Well, I mean, let's see. His brother Halbjorn says, It's not a clever move to send the worst of liars out on an errand on which, it may be said, men's lives depend. So, okay, yeah, he's practically calling him an idiot. Uh, Yeah. But uh, remember that Otkill is trying his best <laughs> to get the upper hand over Gunnar. If he lets Gunnar magnanimously offer a settlement, even if he offers self-judgment to Otkel, he comes out having acted nobly and correctly according to the standards of society. Otkil wants Gunnar to look bad, as bad as possible. Mm-hmm. He wants him to be forced into terms that aren't comfortable for him. If Skompkill's right, the wise and powerful Geezer and Gare can help make this happen. Yeah, but... Geezer and Gare aren't idiots like Otkill or evil like Skamkil. no they they basically tell Skomkill and uh, they basically tell Skomkill that Otkill should immediately accept Gunnar's generous proposal, so there goes that plan. well, not exactly because of course Skomkill is practically a one man game of telephone. The <laughs> message he
1: brings to Otkill is very different from the one he carried. He says mm-hmm. that Geezer and Geer
0: want him to summons Gunnar over the matter at the next all thing uh. Oh. I can't. I can't even believe this. Every time I read it, I'm shocked mm-hmm. that this would happen. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, this is stupid for a lot of reasons. I mean, what what does mm-hmm. he hope to get beyond double compensation? Is he thinking that he can somehow outlaw Gunnar over some stolen cheese? Well, stranger things have happened. But this is Gunnar at the height of his powers. He shows yeah. up at the all thing with
1: all seven of his Sigfus and uncles, and That's Nyal, a lot of weight, and all the Njalsons. Wow. and he even gets the support of his in laws, Hoskold and Hrutt. Those two still around? Yeah, they're still around. Uh, They're a little older and grayer, maybe. But Hrut at least, hasn't forgotten how effective it was when Gunnar threatened to fight him all those years ago. So he Mm. suggests that Gunnar challenge Gizur the White to a duel, unless Gunnar is granted self-judgment. Oh, that again. Yeah, this dueling thing's getting to be a
0: problem, isn't it?
1: Yeah, no, it is. Uh, But we're only about a generation away from when it gets
0: outlawed. So I think people agree with you. It is a problem. Mm-hmm. But in this case, it's strictly meant as a ploy. Right. So Word, and this is the interesting part, Word now gets mm-hmm. to Geezer of what Gunnar's planning, and once he finishes crapping himself over the idea of fighting the Hamundrasins, <laughs> he finds Otkill and he yells at him for ignoring Geezer's advice. Right. Well, that's got to be a surprise to Otkil because he thought he was following Geiser's advice. Well, yeah. And, and now there's a kind of sitcom moment where – Everyone realizes that Skarmkill has been playing games with him. Geezer asks great. Oddkill, Who gave you the idea of summoning Gunnar? Well, Skarmkill told me this is what you and Garthegodi the wanted. Where is that foul creature who told this lie?
1: Uh, he's lying sick in his booth. May he never get up again. It's a <laughs> It's a great exchange. <laughs> Uh, and now, that, and I also like the idea that Skamgill is just sort of cowering in his bed this entire time. Oh, yeah. He's uh, so nervous about bit, uh, being caught here
0: that he's got his yeah, stomach yeah. upset. Uh,
1: <laughs> and of course, now that he knows what happened, uh, Gizur leads Otkill to Gunnar's booth, I presume, by sort of grabbing him by the earlobe and dragging <laughs> yeah, him. Yeah, exactly. So that they can offer him self-judgment over the whole affair.
0: Which really gives Gunnar the upper hand and all the wins mm-hmm. in the game of honor they've been playing so far. Sure. Uh, but is annoyed now, and so he makes
1: the deal much less friendly. Gunnar equates his own ill treatment with the cost of the
0: lost stores. So that's just a wash. I mean, Gunnar doesn't even have to pay for the damage Holgerth caused. Nope. He also gives the slave Melkoff back
1: to Atkal and warns Atkal not to bother Gunnar again if he wants to live.
0: Wow. Gunnar threatens a lot of people, really. I'm just noticing this. Speak on that. Well, it seems to be working for him so far. Uh, But now he's got Otkel's entire crew out there.
1: And chances are good that Otkel's going to ignore that advice about not bothering him anymore.
0: And it won't be long before they find another excuse to come after him. Part 13. Gunnar's Fear. Wait a second. Gunnar's Fear? Gunnar fears nothing. (laughs) Oh, there's one thing that worries him. But uh, we'll get to that. Oh. For right now, there's a brief period of peace after the resolution of Otkel and Gunnar's lawsuit. But like most things in the sagas, this peace lasts only a little while. Otkel's riding with his brothers and his friend Skomkul and Adolf the Norwegian, uh-oh, a Norwegian, mm. <laughs> when he loses control of his horse near Gunnar's farm. Yeah, it's, uh, it's not
1: clear why the horses get spooked, but the narrator is careful to say several times that this is not a ploy on Otkel's part. He's actually lost control of his horse. And he doesn't know
0: that Gunnar is out in the field. Yeah, and Gunnar doesn't know Otkel's there either. He's busy planting seeds. So when he stands up just as altkill thunders past, they're both surprised. Mm-hmm. And before either of them can react, Otkel's spur clips Gunnar's ear and opens a gash. Right, and this is just oh. terrible luck. Uh, Gunnar okay. reminds them all that he'd warned Otkill not to
1: give him any more trouble. But he's also seriously outnumbered. Um, and Skamkil mm-hmm. even dares to make fun of Gunnar. Which usually isn't a smart move survival wise. You were more excitable at the All Thing when you had your halberd with you.
0: Yes, but uh, outnumbered and outarmed, Gunnar contents himself with simply saying, Next time we meet, you'll see the halberd. But Skomkill's not frightened, or at least doesn't demonstrate that he's frightened, and as the group rides off, he shouts, Good riding, fellows! Which means that Gunnar now thinks Otkel's ride was a deliberate attack. Right. Um, this is something you see a lot in the sagas. A, a bit of bad luck gets blown out of proportion, usually due to the advice or gossip of someone who's not even directly connected to the action.
1: Right, and Skamkil's definitely in that mold of small men who run their mouths off. Uh, later, he jokes mm-hmm. to some other people that when Gunnar was cut on the ear, if he were just an ordinary man, it would be said that he cried. <laughs>
0: Skamkel is just a dead man walking now.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> Hell, they've got an actual yeah. Norwegian
0: companion with them. And even he probably thinks Skamkel wearing a red shirt at this point. Yeah. The other thing that's interesting about this particular moment is that it, it kind of highlights the issue of fate in this saga, right? Uh-huh. Um, something yeah. that uh, Njall is, is very much aware of. Right. So even if there is a peace, even if we, we hope that things will resolve, um, fate is leading us towards one thing and one thing only. Absolutely. Um, the conclusion of this, this whole thing. So um, anyway, now that uh, Gunnar has a reason to renew the feud with Altkill's family, we're going to see some action. Um, as his brother, Kolskegi, says, you'd better report this wound to people so that it won't be said that you bring charges against the dead. Right. Now, in other words, uh, that means kolskigi fully expects his brother to kill over this,
1: which is a fair Absolutely. assessment. And as it turns out, an entirely accurate assessment. Otkel and his crew are away mm-hmm. visiting a friend for a week, but when Gunnar learns they're on their way home again,
0: he rides out to meet all eight of them near the Ranga River. And he goes alone. Well, sort of alone. Kolskigi finds out that he's gone and rushes off after him, but the fight already started before he got there.
1: Yeah, uh, because Gunnar's really, really annoyed. And so he confronts yes. the eight riders as soon as they reach him. Andy, I don't know how you read this, but for me, there's a real sense here that Gunnar's got him
0: outnumbered one to eight. Oh, a little bit. I mean, and he's Gunnar. It's not surprising. (laughs) Yeah. He even finds time to mock Skamko a little as they rush him. My Halberd's here now. You'll find out whether I'll do any crying for you.
1: And then the battle (laughs) is on, and it's epic. Yeah. Uh, Unfortunately, the first man to attack is Halbjorn White, Otkel's brother, who's actually not a bad guy. Uh, but he isn't about to stand by while Gunnar fights his brothers, so he charges in. And in a single exchange, Gunnar catches Halbjorn's sword in his shield and then uses his own sword to chop off Halbjorn's arm. Ah, so he uh, he disarms him twice. Oh, that that's unforgivable. That is just terrible. Don't distract me with your offhand remarks. Oh, <laughs> you and your awful pun. <laughs> so the next attacker is Skomkill. Gunnar grabs his halberd bats Skomkill's axe out of his
0: hand, and then runs Skomkill through with the point of the Halberd. What a guy. I mean, this mm. is a great moment. Gunnar lifts Skomkill off the ground entirely on the point of the Halberd and dashes him head first to the ground. And there's a, a good picture of this. Not not uh-huh. an actual picture, but a drawing. <laughs> <laughs> I I think we could say that Gunnar is a little worked up by this point.
1: Yeah. Um he's fighting hard now, but his enemies still outnumber him. He
0: manages to kill Adolf the Norwegian with his own spear, of course. Well, I I think anyone who knows a saga or two knew that Adolf uh, didn't have a good chance of surviving this fight. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. We created
1: that Norwegian companion redshirt for a reason. Uh, Anyway, uh, next Otkil attacks, but Gunnar jumps over Otkel's sword swing and
0: hacks him down too. Yeah, it actually doesn't look like Gunnar needs any help, but uh, Kolskigi rides into the fray at this point and cuts down Otkil's third brother, Halkil. And then the Hamundersons kill the last three men together. With ease, I might add. Right, and while they're doing that, the saga author
1: adds an interesting side narrative. We learn that Morth Valgridsson is told of the fight as it's happening, but he chooses to ignore it. Meaning he doesn't ride to help his cousin Gunnar, and he
0: also doesn't ride to help his friend Otkel. Yeah, that's going to be a theme for Morth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he loves nothing better than playing powerful men off against one another. But uh, he's rarely around when the fighting starts. Mm Mm-hmm. Although the saga never really presents it as cowardice on his part It's more that
1: Morth's a thinking man's villain He'd rather his enemies waste their energies on killing one another True Meanwhile, Gunnar's killing all over the place at this point He's good at it Yeah, he is Uh, But where Morth avoids combat Gunnar keeps getting dragged into it in spite of himself As he and his brother ride home Gunnar says to Kolskegi What I don't know is whether
0: I'm less of a man than other men Because killing troubles me more than it does them this is one of those defining moments of Gunnar's story, and it's been hashed over in the scholarship pretty thoroughly. Gunnar tells us a lot in that one sentence. We learn that he's a reluctant killer, but also that he connects his manliness with the propensity for violence. Sure. Uh, and he's somewhat confused by his own reluctance to kill. Gunnar's
1: on the precipice of the old and new Icelands we occasionally talk about. The earlier generations that relied primarily on personal strength as the enforcer of legal right and the later Mm -hmm.
0: generations that saw law as a force in itself. Right, and neither period is absolute, of course. There are men Mm -hmm. valuing negotiated settlement in the early 10th century, and there's plenty of men who prefer violence among the later generations, especially in the uh, Stirling Age. Right, absolutely. Uh, But
1: Gunnar's fear here is interesting. He's not concerned that he's done something legally wrong or morally objectionable or anything like that. He worries that he's unmanly. The old Norse word is overskri. Uh, which literally translates as unmanlier, and which I think puts an important spin on what he's saying. Look, everybody knows that Gunnar's a man of great
0: prowess and accomplishment. He's not worried about that, or at least I don't read it that way. Right. Only Gunnar seems to think that his manly qualities are hurt by this hesitation to kill, or at least the raw feelings that emerge after the fact.
1: Yeah, he's worried about a quality that exists alongside his manliness,
0: his unmanliness, a presence of weakness in him that makes him hesitate to kill. It's a fascinating moment for me because it calls into question the very idea of manliness as defined by society. This is an author who's invested in a thorough investigation of gender norms and the repercussions that come with them. We see this on a macro scale in terms of how these expectations shape society, but also on a micro scale in terms of how they shape an individual, his identity, and his psychology. It's an impressive bit of writing and quite sophisticated for the time and place it was written, at least compared to other works produced at that time. Absolutely, no, I agree completely.
1: Uh, so for me, this is yet another way of reading masculinity in the saga. Every man, even the famous Gunnar, is worried about his masculine identity. To return to Jakobsen, yeah. it turns out to be difficult to find a man whose manhood is not vulnerable
0: in Jal's saga. But it's important to add that Gunnar's the only one who thinks he might be unmanly. Oh, sure, no, but that's just it. No one's masculine identity is totally
1: secure, right, even privately.
0: Ah. I see what you're getting at.
1: Right. So one of the emergent themes of Nyal saga <laughs> turns out to be that a person's social self is always a little bit different than our interior selves. In an mm-hmm. enemy, that difference is a potential weakness to attack. In our friends, it's a vulnerability. But it's also a source of mystery. Right. There, I mean, there are limitations to how well we can know another person, and this is one of them. And in ourselves, it's a source of insecurity. Even someone like Gunnar, whose exterior perfectly matches the social ideal of manhood, is plagued by the vulnerabilities of his secret self.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I, I like that as a way of thinking about this saga. It's good.
1: And yet, Skamkel's claim that Gunnar was weeping is part of what sends him over the edge. It turns out that Gunnar is just as sensitive as anyone else to suggestions that his manly virtues aren't what they should be. In
0: that much at least, Gunnar is exactly like other men. Preben Sorensen actually links those two events directly. Yeah, according to him, the eight deaths can be directly attributed to Skamkil making fun of Gunnar and claiming that he was crying.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. But
0: the saga doesn't really pause
1: over Gunnar's worries. I mean, we're taking time over it here. No. But what Gunnar does is what he always does when the going gets tough. The tough go to Njall. Right, absolutely. <laughs> this time he goes <laughs> for advice, but I think also as a kind of confession. He needs a friend that he can
0: tell all the things he's done. But Njall's advice is a little concerning, right? He mm-hmm. says... That yeah. the lawsuit from this fight will end well for Gunnar, but that this is the beginning of your career of killings. That's that's pretty ominous. Especially from guy, a mm. guy that can see the future.
1: Yeah, now since we just heard Gunnar saying he doesn't want to kill
0: people, it's not great news for him. Yeah, and y'all's not done. Next he gives Gunnar some rules to live by if he wants to survive. He says, Never kill more than once in the same bloodline, and never break a settlement which good men may make between you and others. You must bear in mind that if these two things happen, you will not have long to live. But otherwise, you will live to be an old man. It's all good advice.
1: uh, But something about Nyal's delivery gives it a kind of prophetic tone. And I think Gunnar's response to it is great. Do you know what will be the cause of your death? I do. What? Something that people would least expect. Now, To me, this is another aspect of what I was just saying. We don't ever really know another person's inner life. I think we get a momentary sense here of the limits of Gunnar's knowledge of Njal. There's something uncanny about Njal's intelligence and foreknowledge, and it seems to scare Gunnar a little, even as it fascinates
0: him. Yeah, he's sort of poking around a bit here to see how far Njal's knowledge actually goes. Yeah,
1: and Njal's response is, I imagine, a little unnerving. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Okay, so while Gunnar is busy getting his palm read by Niall, Otkel's <laughs> relatives, Geezer the White and Gare the Gothi, are trying to sort out how to bring a suit against Gunnar without piddling themselves this time. Right. And the first, they draw straws for who has to actually bring the suit, and unfortunately, Gare loses. Well. And then they're too afraid to actually bring the summons to Gunnar, even though they have a hundred men at their back and call. It's just yep. dangerous. For me,
1: this is a really nice juxtaposition in the text. Gunnar's concern is that he's not up to the masculine standards of others. But meanwhile, on another part of Iceland, two chieftains are quaking in fear of
0: him because of the violence that he hates using. Yes, yes. But the saga isn't just equating manliness and talent at violence, is it? No, not at all. Uh, But I think many of the people in the saga do. Uh, Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, So in the lead up to the all thing, Gunnar and his enemies both gather support and a lot of the chieftains are involved in this case. It's kind of a big deal. We're starting to see this massive scope of the saga. More and more people are finding themselves tied up in the exploits of Gunnar and Yol. Yeah. And speaking of which, John, did uh, did you happen to see who's speaking up as a supporter of geezer and Geir? I couldn't help but notice this uh, uh, guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes, my thing men scoffed you the law speaker. Ah, yes. Your loyal follower. There he is. Mm-hmm. Weighing in on Otkel's behalf. Hmm. Yeah. 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 You, you know... You really should have more control over your men, shouldn't you, getting involved in these scurrilous lawsuits? Hey, he's got a mind of his own.
1: <laughs> I'm no I'm no authoritarian. Okay. Uh, besides, even Robert Cook makes a note about this section. Uh, he says that Scofty is usually spoken of with great
0: respect, and that he's treated unusually badly by this saga author. I, I seem to remember saying something very similar about one of my thingmen, but... Uh, uh, he He's also criticized by uh, Ari Thorgelson, and he's lending a book just for, uh, you know, evenness. Uh, he he says that uh, Skafti's got a tendency to abuse his authority to outlaw. He outlaws many chieftains and many great men. I so, stand uh, by my you know, man. Although it's true that he's in poor company this time. Um, and yet, yeah. I, their lawsuit is pretty serious. It's very serious. Gunnar's charged with killing four important men. There's Otkill, Skamko. Aldolf, the Norwegian and Hallbjorn, the White. And, and Kolskegi is charged with Halkil's death. And the mm-hmm. jury that's convened to hear this case isn't exactly sympathetic to Gunnar's position. They declare the suit for Aldolf invalid because he's Norwegian, but the others are all found to have merit. But you know Gunnar's not going down like that. Not when he's getting legal counsel from Niall Althorgerson. No, he's not. Gunnar gets up and recites a complicated legal defense, which has been pretty clearly taught to him. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. He's using a lot of multi words. Yes, <laughs> he um, He declares Otkel an outlaw because of the previous injury to Gunnar's ear. And between that and the outlaw mistake, he declares Gare's entire suit invalid. Mm. And, he says finally, I also want to tell you of another procedure I have in mind. Right. And, and at this point, we have to give credit to Gare. Uh, his response is pretty
1: good. Oh! Are you going to challenge me to a duel, as you so often do,
0: and disregard the laws? <laughs> oh, that's good. I love <laughs> it. Yeah, uh, Gunnar's getting a bit of a reputation, but uh-huh. uh, no. The, the procedure he has in mind is to charge Gear with minor outlawry for bringing a frivolous suit over Adolf's death, which is pretty yeah. serious. No, it is. I mean, this is all getting into some weirdly nitpicky legal detail.
1: But ultimately, mm-hmm. Njal and Gizur step in and work out a compromise. Uh, compensation for a kill and kill are canceled because of their previous behaviors. Adolf isn't involved in the final settlement because he's Norwegian. But payment must be made for the other deaths,
0: and Gunnar pays the money right away. And this is one of those moments when a man can technically lose a lawsuit and still win the Game of Honor, which is what he does. And that's a good point, yeah. Yeah, so Gunnar seemed to have handled himself very well. He stood up for his rights, but also paid without grumbling for the men whose deaths he caused. He's shown himself to be the equal of multiple chieftains, and his behavior throughout the whole thing is, honestly, it's above reproach. All in all, a pretty good result for Gunnar. Pretty good. But there is that prophecy of Njals hanging over
1: him. This feud was only the beginning of trouble on the horizon for Gunnar. Yes. Part 14. The Ambush at Ranga River. Okay, so Gunnar and Kolskegi pretty much cleared out their list of enemies in that last battle. Uh, and we've got room for a breather before Gunnar's next feud.
0: Oh, not so fast. No. <laughs> There's not that much time as it turns out. I was planning on having some crackers. Nope. Put the crackers away and give the cheese back. <laughs> uh, we do, however, get an interlude uh, during this section where we learn about some changes in the district. Oh, right. Uh, Gunnar and Holgeroth get word that Holgeroth's father, Hoskuld has died. The famous Hoskuld. Mm-hmm. Died? How was he? Killing his enemies by the dozen, diving over a cliff with his last enemy in his grasp, uh, sword in hand. No old age, just old age. Oh well, that's disappointing. I wonder if we'll count it for the uh. By uh well, tune in and there's find a out for you. Uh, but there's also some good
1: news <laughs> uh, in six months. <laughs> uh, shortly after Haskell's death, word comes that Thrain Sigvason and halgarth's daughter Thorgird have had a
0: son. At Holgarth's request. They named the boy Hoskold for his great-grandfather. And we also learn at this point that Gunnar and Holgerth's two sons, uh, Hogni and Grani Gunnarsson, are growing up and becoming men. Mm. All that's not terribly important news right now, but I want you to tuck it away because those three boys are going to grow up and be hugely important to our story later on. Right. Several weeks from now. Um, and
1: they've got a really twisted relationship to one another, I want to point out once more. Um, Hoskold's father is Hogni and Grani's great-uncle, but Hoskuld's mother is their
0: sister. Next time on Jerry Springerson. <laughs>
1: uh, yeah, uh, things are getting a little inbred over at Hitherendi. Uh but that's a problem for the next generation. For now, we need to deal mm-hmm. with the consequences of Gunnar's latest troubles.
0: Right, uh, we, we've got to reseed this saga with people who are jealous of Gunnar's success. Yeah, more or less. We need another good genealogy. Right. <laughs> uh, and the way this author tells it, that's not hard to do. Yeah, more still out there causing trouble, but uh, there's a whole crowd of men working themselves up to challenge poor Gunnar. Right. Now, we can't hope to give you all the detail the saga does about the new people
1: introduced at this point, but we'll try to kind of uh, handle it quickly. Once again,
0: get your pencil out if you're hoping to keep track of all this. Uh, This is – oh, man, this is really a lot of people. Yeah, it is. Uh, I hope you're ready for this, people. (laughs) Uh, You take Starkov's family and I'll take Ailes. Okay, so uh, there are two related families involved here. The first is the family of Starkoth, the son of Bork Blacktoothbeard. Now, there's a nickname that doesn't know when to quit. Yeah, I know. Blackbeard makes sense. It, it's actually the literal meaning of Kolskegi's name. Right. And Blacktooth, well, it's kind of gross, but it still makes <laughs> sense. Blacktoothbeard, well, that's just, that's overkill. Well, I'll, I'll try to explain the name if we ever get to the end of this saga and the judgment section. Don't despair, John. We are going to make it through this. But uh, <laughs> for now, we've got Starkoth. He's married to Hallbearer, and they have four children they are three sons named Thorger, Bork, and Thorkel. Mm-hmm. And they also have a daughter named Hildegund, the healer.
1: Now, Starkoff's sister Steinvor is married to a man named Eil Colson. Uh, like Starkoth, Eil has three sons and a daughter. His sons are Cole, Ottar, and Hawk. And his daughter
0: is Gudrun Nightsun. I like that nickname. Mm-hmm. Um, so now we have eight men and four women. Actually, ten men. Uh, Eil also has two Norwegians
1: staying with him fighting men named Thorir and Thorgrim. Oh, actually,
0: there's an 11th man, Sigurd Swinehead, who's one of Starkov's tenants. Uh, Okay, time out. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are even more people introduced in this section, but we we have to stop somewhere. I mean, this is a lot of people to keep track of.
1: Well, I mean, for what it's worth, most of them aren't going to be
0: in the saga for very long. That's why I said to write them down with pencil. That's true, so I'm glad we... I'm glad we wasted all the time on (laughs) it. So the the Aelsons and uh, the Starkathersons are cousins, and they spend a lot of time together. One day, they get into an argument with their sister-slash-cousin, Hildegun, who praises Gunnar and warns them not to cause any trouble. You have to question the wisdom of that advice. I mean, these are difficult men who actually like to instigate trouble. Isn't this just begging them to start a feud with Gunnar? Well, maybe, but uh, they're, they're pretty good at starting trouble already mm-hmm. by themselves. And They probably would have gotten around to it with or without her help. So, Well,
1: whatever the cause, uh, the crowd of them then immediately head off to Gunnar's, where they challenge him to a horse fight, and I think generally behave like a crowd mm-hmm. of rowdy boys. It's actually hard to take them seriously, except this is a violent culture, and post-adolescent men with swords can make trouble, especially when there's a lot of them.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think their immaturity is really the point here. I mean, the contrast with Gunnar is pretty clear. He's reserved in speaking with them, and he doesn't need to bluster to prove himself. Although he does warn them that if they do anything stupid, like insult him, they will pay for it. So there's another threat from Gunnar. Uh,
1: Gunnar agrees to the horse fight, but various people seem worried about it. And as usual, Gunnar consults Njal. How do you think the horse fight will turn out? You will have the upper hand, but uh,
0: the deaths of many men will come from So you can always count on Njal for a cheery thought at times like this. Well, grim prognostications or no, Njal and his sons aren't about to miss the horse fight. And they're all there on the big day. Yeah, and and Scarpathen gets one look at the
1: Aelsen-Starkathusen clan and knows is going to be trouble. Uh, he offers to prod Gunnar's horse since he expects a human fight to break out and... I'm the violent
0: sort like them. But Gunnar refuses this, wisely so. No one drives Gunnar's horse but Gunnar. Okay, it's horse fighting time. And sure enough, when the fight starts, Cole, Agelson, and Thorger Starkatherson shove their horse to knock Gunnar over. But Gunnar's too strong for them, and when he shoves back, they both get knocked down with their horse falling on top of them. Yeah, that's got to be embarrassing. Oh, it's humiliating. And they respond predictably. They jump up and rush at Gunnar. He grabs Cole and body slams him to the ground, but Thorger knocks Gunnar's horse's eye out with a stick before Gunnar can grab him. Wh- why? What did the horse do? Well, nothing, but these are angry boys and they're lashing out at whatever mm. they can get and they they can't hit Gunnar. Right. <laughs> so Gunnar knocks them both down and the crowd steps in. To yeah, there's a great bit of characterization here. Uh, Cole and Thorger are doing the classic,
1: oh, you lucky my friends are here to hold me back, man, thing. Uh, but Gunnar just stands still and looks. Sounds at like them. you've done
0: that before. Once again, it's the strutting boys trying to measure up to a self-controlled man. Yeah, and don't forget Scarpathen, <laughs> who we uh, we can always count on to pour cast oh, on the fire. Yes. I'm getting tired of all this jostling. He shouts, "It's much more manly when folk fight with weapons." Ouch! You can just see him smiling. Yeah,
1: no, absolutely. Scarpathen's grin. There it is. Uh, anyway, the two sides separate, and Gunnar calmly asks Kolskigi Kul- to put his horse down rather than allow it to oh, suffer. Oh, poor horsey. Well, that's not the only blood that's going to be spilled over this little shoving match. Uh, the Aelsons and the Starkovisons immediately begin
0: marshalling forces to take Gunnar down. And by now, everyone knows that Gunnar's no ordinary man in a mm-hmm. fight. The cousins bring together 30 men for their attack. 30 men against one? Mm-hmm. That's a lot of men. Gunnar might get tired of yeah. killing that man. Well, even Gunnar might find 30 a lot to kill. Fortunately, he's out traveling with his brothers Kolskegi and Hjort, when the enemies finally find him right now before we get to the battle we have an unusual
1: situation Uh, men on both sides of the upcoming fight have prophetic visions
0: first is thorir one of the two norwegians staying with ale oh right yeah he suddenly remembers that he's uh, a norwegian (laughs) right he's a little bit worried no like we said it's it's pretty common for norwegian companions in the sagas to get killed off and this won't be any and apparently thorir has read a few sagas Because he and his friend Thorgrim have no intention of getting involved
1: with this ambush. But Steinvor, Eil's wife, knows a secret about Thorgrim.
0: He's not really Norwegian? (laughs)
1: No, no. He's Norwegian. Uh, And he's been sleeping with Gudrun Knight's son, Steinvor's daughter. Oh. Oops. Yeah, Yeah, don't do that. Yeah. Oops Indeed. Uh, She bullies him into going along with accusations of cowardice, but also by offering tacit approval of his match with her daughter if he does go on the ambush. Uh, Well, that's not so bad. Well, it wouldn't be if Thor wasn't doomed to die. (laughs) But he's seen his death, and he insists that Thorgrim stay behind, the other Norwegian, and asks him not to stay in Iceland nor
0: try to, to try to avenge Thor's death if things go the way Thor expects them to. Yeah, it seems like mm-hmm. people are making kind of a big deal out of this whole thing. Uh, let's say once more that they're bringing 30 men to kill one guy. Right, but as we said uh, last time, Gunnar really is
1: Iceland's Captain America, and a mere numbers advantage isn't enough to make the
0: ambushers feel secure. Yeah, And speaking of Gunnar, while the Aelsen-Starkatharsen clan is getting their numbers together, Gunnar and his brothers are visiting Elida Grimson. Mm-hmm. They're supposed to be traveling with the Njolsons, but Gunnar decided to leave them behind so that they wouldn't get into trouble on his account. See, I know we've said this before, but Gunnar is not smart. He's a good guy, but he's not smart. Well, you know, even he's willing to admit that after he stops on the ride home to have a nap while his brothers wait. He wakes up having had a vision that the three brothers will be attacked by wolves and that Hjort, the youngest Hamonderson brother, He's going to be killed in this attack. Right. Now, we've talked about this. Uh, sudden sleepiness usually means there's
1: either magic or prophecy at work. Uh, and so Gunnar, Gunnar's dream worries him.
0: And he wishes the Nialisans were along mm-hmm. on the trip. But it is too late now. Um, they begin riding, and then they see the 30-man ambush coming toward them. Right. Now, this is a great dream come, great come true, as it were.
1: Yeah. Um, and now, I love this. The Himundersans the have to gallop right past the front of the attacker's to reach a defensible position at the bank of the Ranga River, and then leap off their horses just as the ambushes attack.
0: Yeah, there's so much action in this sequence. We really can't include everything, but if you're a fan of the battle descriptions in the sagas, this one has it all. We've got Gunnar firing arrows so powerfully that the first one goes through Sigurd Swinehead's shield, then through his head, and then it sticks out the back of his (laughs) neck. Pretty impressive.
1: This is the first time we see Gunnar using
0: a bow, and it's typical of the man. He's got massive draw strength, and the light shields of the attackers are useless against his arrow. Yeah, and then he kills another man by shooting him in the gut so hard that he's thrown sideways into another man. is throwing rocks, and he crushes that guy's head before he can even recover his balance. It's brutal. Uh, the ambushers realize they can't hope to
1: beat Gunnar if he can just shoot them all to death. So all three Starkathosons rush him. Yeah. Gunnar drops his bow, but now he's fighting with his halberd and his sword both at once.
0: Oh, boy. He disarms Bork and chops Thorkel Starkadison's head off. Kolskegi and Hjort are busy fighting as well. One of the Eggelsons, uh Cole, has a particular desire to fight Kolskegi, and he manages to run a spear through Kolskegi's lead while he's busy killing another man. Why is Kolskegi always getting called out by guys with similar names to his? I, I don't know, but uh, you know, I suppose he should be grateful that he wasn't named Thor something. He'd never be <laughs> done fighting in Iceland. Uh, that's a good point. Uh, so Kolskegi's got a spear through his thigh now Sure, but we've been saying for a while that Kolskegi's an impressive warrior in his own right mm-hmm. And now he proves it He rushes Cole without bothering to remove the spear And he lops Cole's leg off Oof. And then he mocks Cole So, did that hit you or not? Oh, this is what I get for not shielding myself And yeah, Cole no stands kidding. there for a minute just staring at the stump of his leg You need not stare at it, it's just as you think Your leg's gone and then Cole drops dead. Oh, that's, <laughs> ju- that's just mean. I know. I, I I shouldn't laugh at it, but it's such a well-delivered line, mm-hmm. you know. And and tempers are understandably a little high. At well, this I point. mean, this sort of thing does happen in the sagas sometimes.
1: Uh, John Stephenson and W.G. Collingwood point out that this detail suggests a real knowledge of injury and its effects. Uh, the shock of a terrible wound
0: really can cause this kind of almost calm detachment. For a few moments in some cases. Yeah, like that scene in uh, Saving Private Ryan at the beginning where the guy's kind of wandering around looking for his uh, his arm. Like that. If you want to make that analogy, if that helps you, go for it. <laughs> Calm detachment. He picks up his arm. He's walking around like, hey. <laughs> it is an accurate comparison. I don't yeah. deny that it is. Meanwhile, Gunnar kills Cole's father, ale
1: and Thor, the Norwegian, rushes Hjort Hermundersen, who's already killed two men.
0: Uh-oh. Yeah, these are the two guys who were prophesied to die in this fight.
1: Well, I mean, yeah, but since the Ranga River is already choked with corpses, I don't think not being prophesied to die is
0: much of a guarantee of safety. Fair enough. But uh, it's still a moment with a lot of fate at work. And in a brief exchange, Thorir hacks Hjart down, Mm. and Gunnar then rushes Thorir and hacks him in half. I think that needs to be emphasized. He cuts him in half. Gunnar is definitely a little worked up by now. And he and Kolskegi continue massacring their enemies until the survivors, most of them wounded, finally give up and run away. And the final count is about 15 men dead, Yep, 14 of the ambushers, and young Hjort Hemundersen. Yeah, the body count here is impressive, but this is also notable for how many of the dead are
1: important figures in this feud. Right? All three Aelsons are dead. Ael is dead. Two of the Starkathesens are dead, with Thorgir and his father Starkath for surviving with injuries. Thor the Norwegian He's a dead man. Sigurd Swinehead. Dead.
0: Marmalade. Dead. Nadermeyer. Dead. Very nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the point is that this is an absolute bloodbath. And as Gunnar and Kolskegi carry their brother's body home for burial, they know that there's going to be massive consequences for the deaths of so many men. Right. And- that brings us to the end of this episode. Uh, we're right in the middle of a major sequence in the saga, so we'll be back very, very soon with the next part. In the meantime, you can contact us with any comments, questions, or suggestions through social media, where we are at Pod on Twitter and Podcast on Facebook. Or you
1: can carefully poke a hole in the end of two tin cans, attach them with a piece of string, mail us one of the cans, and then wait till we pick up. Um, yeah, th- these things are getting kind of elaborate, John. Are you sure that will work? I have to believe it will. <laughs> and don't forget, if you have a paper or want to write a paper for our panel at next year's uh, conference in Kalamazoo, the medieval conference, send us an abstract by September 15th. We look forward to hearing from you on
0: that. Absolutely. All right. Let's uh, go get some rest so we can do this all again in a day or so. You really think we can do that? Well, like you, I have to believe that we can.
1: <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye for now.
0: right teacher God forbid I add something <laughs>